This is KVRX 91.7 Austin, and you are listening to Dialectica, an examination of the civic, political, and economic issues that matter to us all on global, national, and local levels. Dialectica is brought to you by students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs and is produced in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the inaugural show of the second season of Dialectica Radio. My name is James Tanner, and I'm one of the executive producers of the show, and I'll be your host today. If you've listened to our show in the past, or on the off chance that you know me personally, you know that my biggest fixation these days is on the financial crisis, and not just what's actually happening, but why it's happening. And over the summer break, I had the opportunity to spend some time looking more deeply into the causes of the crisis. And so for the first show of the year, I wanted to share some of the things that I've found. But that leads me to a couple of problems. First, the topic I want to discuss today is quantitative finance. And you know, sometimes it's hard to get people excited about anything with the word quantitative in the name. But before you change the dial, I want to let you know that this isn't going to be anything like a math class. We're not going to delve too deeply into abstract statistics and obscure financial concepts. I'm going to try and stick to the storytelling, and whenever a concept needs to be explained, I'll try to unpack it in a jargon-free way that a layperson can understand. The second problem is that this is a pretty big topic. Explaining why this stuff is important in a radio-friendly way, is simply too large of a task for a 30-minute show. So this is going to be a two-part show. In this episode, we'll discuss the origins of quantitative finance, the Black-Scholes-Merton method, and what happened during the first big wave of quantitative finance on Wall Street. In episode two, we'll look at the second big wave of quantitative finance and the rise of the Gaussian copula function, which culminated in the current economic crisis. And we'll explore the various questions that we have today that all basically boil down to, what do we do now? So what is quantitative finance, anyway? In a nutshell, it's when a financial company uses numbers and formulas to make their decisions about whether to buy and sell investments. This is a relatively new phenomenon. It's only been around since the mid-1970s. And before that, investment firms relied pretty much exclusively on the experience and the gut instincts of stockbrokers to make those decisions. But in the last quarter century, this has now changed pretty drastically. It's mostly formulas these days. And today, there's now a growing concern that these newfangled quantitative methods are a huge underlying reason, not only for the current economic crisis, but also for the boom and bust cycles we've seen in the global economy over the last quarter century. And so I've spent the last few days trying to figure out what's the best way to present this argument in a way that everyone can relate to. And eventually, I decided... For the first segment of the show, we're not going to talk about finance at all. Instead, we're going to talk about blackjack. 
Welcome to Vegas. This is real world-class money-making business. What's the count? Plus nine. Plus five. Plus 13. Dude, I lost count 20 cards ago. Don't call me dude. What if we get caught? Counting cards isn't illegal. We stay under the radar, and we look for the signal. Folded arms, the table's hot. Blackjack. I'm just doing this to pay for it. What you just heard was a clip from the trailer of the 2007 movie 21, which is loosely based on a real story about a group of MIT students who take weekend jobs, sort of, making millions of dollars counting cards in Las Vegas. But while the movie was based on events that happened in the early 1990s, their strategy of card counting in blackjack has its roots in the statistical revolution that took place in America in the period roughly after World War II. Before then, the field of statistics was largely abstract and academic. But when the U.S. government was confronted with the need to mobilize vast resources, first during the Great Depression and then in the war effort, they discovered that statistical methods had some profoundly practical uses. In the 1950s, the 60s, the 70s, statistics became a very innovative and, dare I say, sexy field of academic study. Predictably, ground zero for that wave of innovation was the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. In the 1950s and 60s, the statistical revolution had taken what was once this boring engineering school and imbued it with an atmosphere of anything-goes innovation in statistical methods. Professors from across the analytical spectrum, from physics to math to the brand new field of computer science, uh, they were broadly encouraged to apply their energies to invent new statistical techniques and applications. One of those MIT professors was a mild-mannered mathematician from the Midwest named Edward Thorpe. In the early 1960s, Thorpe had run across an academic paper that used statistical methods to create an optimizing strategy for playing blackjack. Now, blackjack is a casino card game, and like all casino games, it's a statistically it's a losing game. It's designed so that the player loses most of the time in a one-on-one -on -one game with a dealer. And since Thorpe was a, a conservative Midwestern mathematician, gambling was just not his thing. He wasn't really interested in blackjack starting out. Uh, but the paper Thorpe read did provide a strategy to minimize blackjack losses. It increased your odds of winning to about 45%. You'd still lose 55% of the time, and since in blackjack you only make blind bets, that is, you bet before you get any of the cards, that means you can't fine-tune your bet based on the quality of your hand, so you'd expect to lose a dollar for every ten dollars you bet on average. Now that's better than your typical blackjack player, but it's still not exactly a winning strategy. But when he read this paper, Thorpe was really bothered by this conclusion. You see, the author of the paper had assumed that the blackjack player has absolutely no knowledge of what cards were coming in the deck. But wait, Thorpe thought, an observant player has plenty of information about the cards that are left in the deck because you know all of the cards that aren't in the deck. You see, the casino dealers, they don't shuffle their used cards back into the deck because blackjack is a very fast-paced game and if casinos took the time to shuffle between every hand, 
people would just get bored. They'd leave the table. So casino dealers put the used cards in a separate discard pile. And Thorpe realized that if the blackjack player can remember the cards that had been previously played, the player would have some pretty good information about the cards that are left in the deck. But how could a player use that knowledge? So Thorpe did some more statistical analysis, and soon he discovered that there are two occasions when knowing the cards in the discard pile can make a decisive difference. First, he discovered that there are times when a hot streak of high cards comes up in the deck, and at those times, the odds of winning flip and the player becomes more likely to win than the dealer. And conversely, he found that when a cold streak of low cards comes up in the deck, the dealer should win not just the amount they normally win, but much more often than they normally do. So you could count the low and the high cards that were played in the previous hands, and you can use that count to estimate whether a hot streak or a cold streak is coming in the deck, and by adjusting your strategy accordingly, you could boost your overall odds of winning to about 51%. Now that may not sound like much, but using this strategy over thousands of games, you would be virtually guaranteed to win some money. But Thorpe wasn't satisfied with that. The card counting method only increased your odds of winning slightly after all, so that even with the count in your favor, it'd be way too risky to bet most of your money on any one hand, because there's always a significant chance you could lose. But Thorpe was convinced that there should be some mathematical way to figure out exactly how much money to bet on each hand so that you could optimize your winnings. And soon enough, he found a method to do exactly that. The Kelly formula was extremely simple, easy enough to do in your head, and all you needed to know was the odds that you'd win on a particular hand. So, keep a running tally of the card count, figure out your odds of winning based on that count, stick those odds into the formula, and it'll tell you exactly what percentage of your money to bet. So in the end, Thorpe's system was this complete statistical model for the game of blackjack. You put in a bunch of objective and easily observable numbers on one end, and the system spits out exactly how much money to bet and exactly what kind of strategy you should use to optimize your wins. And over time, it was a system that was statistically guaranteed to make you a lot of money as long as you stuck with the system. And so when Thorpe published his findings in a book called Beat the Dealer, in 1962, it completely revolutionized the world of gambling. Now, we're done with the segment on blackjack, but we're not done with Edward Thorpe just yet. You see, after Beat the Dealer became a New York Times bestseller, Thorpe left the world of casino gambling entirely. You see, he had his sights set on a bigger prize, beating the stock market. And he wasn't alone. You see, once the statistical revolution had kicked into full gear, finding a way to apply statistics to beat the stock market soon became the holy grail of statistical studies. And by the mid to late 1970s, 
It appeared that some of Thorpe's colleagues at MIT, Myron Scholes and Robert Merton, along with a University of Chicago professor named Fisher Black, that these professors had actually figured out a way to beat the market. And just as the Thorpe system took the gambling world by storm, the Black-Scholes-Merton method, or what I'll call the BSM method, soon revolutionized finance. Now, I won't bother trying to explain exactly how the BSM method works, but I'll try and describe basically what it does. You see, these professors were trying to figure out a way to manage investment risk by using a technique called hedging. Hedging is basically when you insure yourself from losses by betting both ways on an investment. You bet some money that the stock will go up and some money that the stock will go down. So let's illustrate what hedging would look like outside the stock market. Let's say you're a toy collector and you buy a Wolverine action figure for $50. A new Wolverine movie is going to be coming out next week, so it's a bit of a risky purchase. You see, if the movie is good, the value of the figure could climb up to $100. And if the movie bombs, the value of the figure could drop to zero. You might not be able to sell it at all. Now, you think this movie has a 50-50 chance of being good or bad. And while you think that 50 bucks is an appropriate value for the figure, you're still concerned about the risk. But now let's say you have a friend. He's named Alvin. And he thinks the movie's going to be a surefire hit. So how can you use this situation to your advantage? It's actually pretty simple. You can make a proposal to Alvin that you'll pay him $5 now, and in exchange, he'll give you a promise that in one week's time, if you want to sell it, he'll buy the action figure from you for $55. Now, this is called an option contract, or maybe a, a futures contract, or a forward contract. The, the $5 that you pay up front is the option price. It's the upfront price of the option contract. And the 55 bucks he contractually promises to pay at your request, that's called a strike price. So, why does he take this deal? Well, it's, it's because he thinks the movie will be a surefire hit. So for him, he thinks he'll never have to pay the strike price, and it's a free $5. But from your point of view, you're concerned that the movie could go bust. And if it does, by getting the amount of the strike price from Alvin, you'll recoup those five bucks you paid up front, plus the 50 you paid for the action figure. So by making this deal, you have absolutely no downside risk. And if the movie's a hit, you'll end up making 45 bucks profit. It's not as good as 50 bucks maybe, but still not bad. So in the end, you've traded a gamble with an upside of $50 and a downside of $50 for a gamble with an upside of $45 and a downside of zero, which overall, that's a much better deal. And whenever you've hedged your bet to the point where you have a downside of zero, this is what it means to be perfectly hedged. You've totally eliminated the chance that you could lose money. And this is ultimately what the holy grail of statistics is all about, finding a method that uses option contracts to perfectly hedge your stock investments. But, in the real world of stocks, this is an extremely complex problem. For one thing, 
How does the buyer and the seller of an option agree on the option price? In the toy collector example, Alvin may be willing to buy the action figure in a week for 55 bucks, but maybe only if you pay him 30 bucks up front. And resolving this problem is a little harder than it looks, because on the face of it, there's no easy way to know whether your price is more appropriate than his. And also, in the stock market, you have a ton of other complications. Stock prices are always changing. Interest rates can change. Some stocks are more volatile than others. You have to worry about inflation and so on. So, what BSM did was approach this problem in pretty much the same way that Thorpe approached the problem of blackjack. And while the BSM method is much more complicated than Thorpe's beat the dealer method, when you trim it down to conceptual basics, their solution is very similar. Remember that in Thorpe's blackjack method, he first prescribed card counting, that is, collecting objective and easily measurable information to determine your odds of winning. And once you know the odds of winning, you have a system that tells you how much to bet and what strategy to use for playing the hand. In BSM's method, you take a bunch of objective and easily measurable information about an option, that is the stock price, strike price, past volatility of the stock, current interest rate, time before the option comes due. And the formula gives you an option price that you and Alvin should both be able to agree upon because you arrived at the price in a rational and unbiased way. So, just like the card counting method makes blackjack a, a modestly winning game, the BSM method makes option hedging a modestly viable investment strategy. But just the same way that Thorpe didn't stop with card counting, the BSM method doesn't stop with finding a price for your options. In the same manner that the Kelly formula tells the blackjack player how much they should bet to optimize their winnings. The BSM method also tells the investor how to create a dynamic portfolio made of options, their underlying stocks, along with risk-free investments like treasury bills. And it tells you exactly the right proportions of each that you should have at any one time so that the portfolio is always perfectly hedged with zero downside risk, at least on paper. Now, the real world is messy. Sometimes you'll lose a game of blackjack when the deck is hot, and sometimes the BSM method won't always prevent losses, but nonetheless, the, the BSM method promised what everyone was searching for, a statistically optimal strategy for playing the stock market. As you can imagine, the BSM method was a smashing success. Within a few years of publication, Black, Scholes, and Merton had all left academia to take lucrative jobs on Wall Street. Option contracts and hedge funds started multiplying like rabbits, and quantitative finance took off like a rocket. Myron, Scholes, and Robert Merton managed to get through the 1980s in pretty good shape, working for Solomon Brothers. With the emergence of the BSM method, Scholes and Merton quickly found rock star status on Wall Street. However, they still felt a little disappointed, because big firms on Wall Street hadn't put their full faith into the BSM method. 
Sure, most firms had found ways to integrate the method into their investment strategies, but at the end of the day, stock traders and stock brokers were still the ones making the final decisions to buy and sell, and Scholz and Merton were convinced you could make all those decisions by computer. So, in 1993, Scholz and Merton took the reins of a brand new hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management, or LTCM. This firm would be completely devoted to using quantitative methods to make its buy and sell decisions. Now at first, LTM was enormously successful. Before it spent a single day on the trading floor, LTCM had attracted over a billion dollars in capital from investors. And in its first year, it made a 20% return on those investments. The following year, it made almost 40% on its investments, and then it repeated that again the next year. And this totally flipped Wall Street on its ear. Investment firms all over the world began to copy LTCM's number-crunching strategies. But in 1997, right after Scholz and Merton won the Nobel Prize for their work, the global financial markets suddenly started behaving erratically, and LTCM's winning strategies slowly began to fall apart. The Asian financial crisis somehow led to Russia defaulting on its debts. And then Latin American currencies began to unexpectedly collapse. And the ship of global finance had suddenly just hit an iceberg. But LTCM's mathematical formulas told the company to hold on to their investment positions. And as a result, LTCM was the last company to head for the life rafts. In the end, they didn't quite make it. In the first three weeks of September 1998, there was a massive run on LTCM stocks, and the federal government had to step in, coordinate a bailout of LTCM by the major Wall Street banks. In the final analysis, LTCM was found to have lost uh, $4.6 billion above and beyond the investments people made in the company. There's obviously a lot to the LTCM collapse that I don't have time to address, but looking at the big picture, it seems pretty clear that Scholz, Merton, the other managers of LTCM, they lost sight of something pretty simple, and that's that the stock market is not a casino. You see, Thorpe's blackjack method worked to perfection because in a game of blackjack, there's almost no mystery about what's going on. You know exactly how many cards are in the deck. You know exactly what the rules of the game are and the rules the dealer must play by. You know the value of the cards in your hand and so on. The only thing you don't know is the order of the cards that are remaining in the deck. But even then, you know that the order of the cards will be purely random. And pure randomness has some very unique features so that you can make some pretty good guesses about the composition of the deck if you know that the order of the cards is purely random. For example, let's say you know that there are 10 high cards left in a deck of 30. So you also know 
that it's highly unlikely that all ten high cards will be right next to one another in the deck. And in fact, if you know that it's a purely random deck, you can even calculate how low the odds are of that happening. And that's useful information. And Thorpe's quantitative model for the game of blackjack relies very heavily on the randomness of the cards left in the deck being perfectly random. But the stock market is not perfectly random. Rather, it's more a form of chaos. Every little thing happens for a reason, but there are so many little things happening in the market that it, it simply appears to be an accumulation of random events most of the time. And when you look at the BSM method, what it does is it creates a model for the stock market. And one very important assumption that the model makes is that the, the real market behaves like it was just an accumulation of purely random and isolated events. Now, Scholes and Merton were both obviously aware that their formulas made that assumption of pure randomness and that this was a problem. We know all this because they also invented ways to compensate for this weakness when the market started behaving in ways that clearly wasn't random. But unfortunately, those compensation methods require that you know what's actually happening in the market at the time that it's happening. And sometimes that insight is extremely elusive. For example, look at the snowballing currency crises that took the globe by storm in 1997-1998. In hindsight, we know exactly what happened. Big investment firms from all over the world started taking more risk because they had formulas like the BSM method, which they thought would help them perfectly hedge those risks. And so you started seeing more and more investment in corners of the world where previous investors had rarely tread. And this outpouring of investment soon led to the creation of little investment bubbles all over the world. And the BSM method didn't recognize that those bubbles existed. And the investors themselves probably didn't know that the bubbles were forming, but in any case, even if they knew, very few of them adjusted the basic BSM strategy. They were making too much money to change their approach, really. So once those bubbles started popping, a chain reaction followed. Investors got nervous. They abandoned their quantitative formulas, and they started withdrawing all of their global investments. And so even though business conditions in Thailand may not have had anything to do with business conditions in, say, Argentina, when the global flow of investment suddenly reversed, the risk of investing in Thailand was suddenly linked to the risk of investing in Argentina. Another way of saying it is that these risks were invisibly correlated, if only because both economies depended on the same fickle investors. Now, since the BSM method only deals with one investment at a time, it offered absolutely no way to deal with risk correlation between two or more investments. And so the key lesson that the world of finance took from the LTCM saga was that if you were going to use quantitative methods, you had to find a way to deal with risk correlation. And that is where today's show will end. In the second half of the show, we'll talk a little more about chaotic randomness and risk correlation and how attempts to find 
quantitative fixes for these problems eventually led to the widespread embrace of the Gaussian copula function, which in turn helped lead to that current economic crisis. And we'll finish up with a discussion of the lessons to be learned. This is James Tanner for Dialectica Radio. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Dialectica has been brought to you by the students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. Sources for our show can be found on our website, which can be accessed through kbrx.org. Any opinions offered on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the LBJ School of Public Affairs, the University of Texas, or KBRX Student Radio. Thank you to our producers and our guests, and remember, you are listening to KBRX Austin.